Welcome to the first uh, episode of my podcast, uh, Agents of Hope. Uh, my name is Tim Cox. I am a third year training educational psychologist studying at Newcastle University and I'm also on placement um, in, in Tyneside as well. Uh, my guest today is Dr. Joe Taylor. Uh, could you give me just a bit of an introduction to, to who is Joe Taylor, what he does, what are your interests, what are your influences? Yes. Um, firstly, it's really exciting to be on a first episode. Uh, that that's really cool. Um, I also love the name. In the preamble, I was I was wondering about asking you if you thought of a name, but Agents of Hope is really that's awesome. Um, so I'm Joe. I'm a I'm a psychologist, educational psychologist in London, and I. Who am I? I am. I'm from an area called Hackney, which is um, it's North London, and it is uh, very diverse. And it's mm-hmm. now very. It's full of hipsters now, uh, yeah. but it used to be um, a relatively uh, poor borough, and and my my schooling was really mixed and really wonderful in lots of ways. And that made me really interested in education. <laughs> I was a young carer and that also got me interested in barriers to attainment. And I trained to be a teacher. I also uh, started up and, and ran and then uh, closed down uh, some edu startups okay. and i i applied i actually applied to to trainers in the ed psych from a place of being a founder of an edu startup which okay. it, i mean clearly they also saw there was some merit in what i was doing because i, okay. I got a place on on the course but i i'm really in hindsight i'm really thankful that that worked out because it's definitely the best job I've ever had mm, and yeah. I and I recognize in hindsight now that it it's a it's a bit of an unconventional route in yeah um, so that that's a bit about me I also uh train Thai boxing I okay. like yoga um th- those are things I'm interested in I did my thesis on boxing yeah uh, I saw that yeah of, of boxing as an intervention which also um, I had a whole other plan about trying to look at how EPs could support initial teacher training. Yeah. Which I thought could be really cool. And then my partner, Kate, made me uh, reflect on that halfway up a mountain. I was just like, do you really love it? And I was like, I don't love it. So, um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I changed. I changed. And um, so that's, that's what I uh, looked at. And I'm really. I'm interested in, I'm at a point in my EdSight career where I'm quite early stage, I suppose. Okay. So I, how long ago did you qualify? Uh, it will be two years in uh, September. Okay. Is that okay. right? Yeah. So I've, I suppose I'm interested in everything. I, I feel like I'm constantly trying to uh, limit what I'm actively researching because there's, yeah. there's so much I have to learn. So, you know, I'm really interested in dynamic assessment. Okay. I'm really interested in 
supporting people, uh, looking through a, a lens of developmental trauma. Okay. Um, I, I find myself really interested in the therapeutic aspect of mm-hmm. our work and especially okay. like what that, what that looks like in a school. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, I'm training to be a, a VIG practitioner. Video oh, awesome. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I, I kind of, there are lots of things I'm interested in. My, my reading list of, of articles to read ranges from like flow states through yeah. to um, motivation, different types of motivation, uh, through to self-actualization, so like really kind of humanistic uh, yeah. theories. Uh, I found myself really loving psychodynamic theory. Um, yeah. I've gone on a real journey with, and mm-hmm. um, I, I'm reading Winnicott. Winnicott wrote a, a kind of collection of cases. And, and yeah. So yeah, that that's like a, a mind dump of everything I'm interested in. At yeah, the yeah. I was interested when you're talking about kind of your kind of edu startups. What what is that? And you know, because there's a lot of people who might be coming to listen to a podcast like this with with an interest yeah. um, in education psychology and and kind of a passion for it, but from lots of different backgrounds. So I don't know what one of those is. So could you just summarize that? Yeah. So. An edu startup is, it, it's a startup, so a, a company that's still trying to work out its business model okay. within the education sector. Uh, so when I was teaching, I, I love teaching. I, ne- I never actually officially stopped being a teacher. Uh, my, yeah. my appendix ruptured. So I, right. I, okay. um, I kind of, I was forced to leave my, my post for, for health reasons, but um, then in the recovery time, I um, essentially got some funding for a startup idea that I had, mm-hmm. which was about trying to connect parents into school. Great. School life. Yeah. And, and yeah. the way that we tried to do that was by letting teachers share their students' work um, okay. using a website. And, and then, uh, you know, there were plans for an app. So um, what is it? Uh, an edu startup, yeah, it's, it's kind of like a, a fledgling idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of me, I, I suppose my entire career really has been about trying to improve society through education. Yeah. And I, yeah, I suppose I, I felt like when I was teaching, I saw different things that frustrated me or I thought could be better. And yeah. those were my attempts at, trying to fill those gaps or, or work in those areas. Yeah. And actually I found myself a little frustrated about the lack of evidence base behind what I was doing. Okay. I, found, I was drawing upon evidence from my experience from within the classroom, mm-hmm. but hadn't really drawn upon any uh, research evidence or any, or really any uh, broader ex- evidence from other teachers. So yeah. I found myself miss, missing missing the psychology of my undergrads, and and that was okay. kind of how I found myself wondering whether I should apply for the ed psych course. Okay, yeah, yeah. So that that's kind of my my roots. Yeah, I mean, mine was slightly slightly different than that, I guess. And it's really interesting here that you've taken quite like a creative route, 
Um, and I don't think there's one fixed route. I mean, you know, being being a trainee at the moment, you come into kind of constant contact with people who are trying to apply or on courses in different places. And the different stories that you hear are really kind of uh, like it makes you think there's a real wealth of kind of different skills in this. And, you know, that creativity, that kind of uh, way of thinking about a problem, I guess, has been it's probably really helpful in that kind of traded relationship. So is do you do you work in a traded way or is because you know in the northeast that tends to be the way that we do things um but it and that for me opens lots of opportunities although it can be quite uncomfortable for other people yeah i think all of my all of the local authorities i've done placements in or Mm. worked in have been mostly traded so i suppose for people that don't know what we're talking about you know that that means that schools have a pot of money that they choose to spend on on ed psych time, and there are there are still some places in in the country that instead of the school receiving that money, the local authority receives that money, and so the ed psych service is nominally free for schools, but you know the money the money is coming through a different avenue. Um, in terms of my experience, I suppose it it means I'm in quite an interesting position because I work for most of my week in a local authority. Yeah. And that, and local authorities are really big organizations and they have lots of processes and structures. And my, my professional experience is either in a classroom where I, I've been in charge of my classroom for the most part, or in a startup where I'm kind of making up the rules with my team mm-hmm. and, and it's really kind of bottom up emergent. Um, so I think that that, that can be really useful and it can also lead to uh, frustration and it can also lead to amazing problem solving. And it, and it means I've got a lot to learn as well about that kind of big, yeah, big yeah. scale stuff. Yeah, I mean, it kind of brings me on to kind of the, the next section of what I kind of like to discuss is like how we got to this this conversation that we're having um, right now. And I guess um, for me, I took a, a different route into kind of psychology. I didn't study it at school at all. I didn't study it at, for undergrad. I studied history. I was always, always interested in those kind of why are we like we are questions and, and history was my way of looking at that. I was brought up in like a religious household. My dad's a vicar, or was, he just retired. And, um, you know, he had you know, real views about this is why we are. And, and he was pulling from a theological basis of that and a scriptural basis, which, which didn't seem to resonate with kind of my experiences or my things. So I looked at history to, to kind of uh, look at that. And then I went and studied at university. And in our first um, semester, um, the, the the first thing that all the history students had to do was like discuss what the po- what what's the point in history, and the conclusion was well there isn't one, yeah, um, because it's all too personal. Um, so I found that really difficult to kind of assimilate with, and kind of those were my first. Um, I thought, I guess that was kind of my kind of baptism into thinking about society in a different way, and thinking about social justice and making society better through something. And looking into the past, it didn't seem to be that thing. Um, although it was interesting and it taught me a lot about, you know, how we've got here. Uh, and what, what was your got... first encounter with psychology? 
Well, it, I, I was working, so I, I left university and worked as a non-teaching pastoral head of year um, in a school in Hampshire, and I was really terrible at it, like really bad. And I'd never been bad at anything really, um, apart from football. Um, ah. But I, you know, I didn't, you know, I was deluded. But, you know, it was, I was bad at it, and I thought, like, there's got to be some evidence base out there which helps me to understand this. Right. I was really interested, you know, I was working with, you know, young people, year eight, year nine, going for adolescence and coming up against problems that I'd understood. But all I could see in the mirror when I went home was, you're acting like the teacher that kind of didn't understand you, didn't get you, didn't respond to you. So that's how I got interested in, in young people. And then I, uh, I basically stopped doing that job and moved back to Wales to have a semi-unsuccessful music career. And at the same time, I was working in a pupil referral unit. Um, and part of the job there was to uh, be the outreach worker who kind of bridged that transition between being at the pupil referral unit and back into mainstream school. And I worked alongside an EP then. Um, so it was kind of very kind of hands-on, very lucky just to fall into that position um, and then I went back to the school in Hampshire that I'd worked in before and applied that and I noticed that kind of I guess in more a settled mainstream all those ideas were really really powerful and helpful I thought okay that's the thing that helps me to understand and be competent at, at this at this job and that's what seems to be the most meaningful thing Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of alongside that, I was also having kind of my, my own struggles with kind of mental health uh, and depression, particularly. And the kind of my way of dealing with that was reading. Um, so I kind of came across, you know, psychological literature and kind of existential kind of fictional literature. I thought this says a lot about my life. So I decided to go and study a, uh, a conversion course at Bristol. Uh, and kind of drop everything, go to a new city and had a lot of time. And I kind of read Frankel and Fromm and kind of, kind of big existential psychologists um, at that time. And um, through that decided, this is what I want to do with my life. It's not to be a better head of year. It's what I, if I can apply psychology, that's what I'd like to do. Um, and I worked for three more years in, in mainstream schools and then applied for the course. And, and, and luckily, um, at that time, I was working in Newcastle and I got in at Newcastle. Um, so, yeah, it's been been crazy. And then coming on to the course, it was it churned everything up and I thought that I had something settled. And like, this is who I am. And then I really looked at those things. I guess what's led me to this conversation was I found first year really difficult having never worked in an educational psychology service or, you know, apart from those few months with a psychologist, um, I kind of thought I had, you know, I really had to think, like, what's at the basis of this profession and what makes me tick? Mm-hmm. What's the common ground between that and the people I've worked with in schools because I want to do the best by the kids and by the people I've worked with. And that seemed to be hope. Um, so in my second year, I kind of, got obsessed with the idea and uh, wrote loads of extended pieces on, on hope and really like annoyed all my tutors and other trainees by just talking about it all the time. Um, but 
in September last year, I kind of put together something and submitted for publication. It got published in last month's DCP um, debate, which was brilliant. And I presented on it at the Training Education Psychology Conference in Northampton in January. And since then, I've kind of gone onto Twitter and found out there's actually loads of people who are interested in that. Um, and that's how we kind of started having the conversation. Yeah. And it's actually, there's, there is people who are interested in this. It isn't just like me being a sad little loser in my room, being obsessed with hope. <laughs> um, you know, there's people who want to talk about this thing. Yeah. Um, and what I found really difficult when I first started training to be an EP, it's like, what is an EP? What does it do? Um, and I could, I, I knew within myself that it was a powerful thing, but I couldn't really say what it was that was powerful um, about it. And I told that to my supervisor, supervision, who said, it's weird, isn't it? Because you can't pull one thing that pulls everybody together. And I took that as a kind of challenge and I went away and listened and shadowed people and thought, what is in everybody's practice? Yeah. Hope. Um, I think for, just to add to that, I, I'm really thankful that you wrote about hope and, and published that article and presented on it because it crystallized something for me. I, really, really just what you said in terms of hope is at the heart of psychological practice. I think more profoundly than that, hope is part of being a human. Yeah. And, and, and it, and I'd never thought about it until you started talking about it. And that, and that, you know, that's one of the wonderful things about being in a profession where people are, are thinking and putting stuff out there, you know, it, it, reframes and and gives you different lenses for all of for all of your all of your practice and mm. it i really love i just want to kind of highlight what you just said in terms of you went away with this challenge like what is an ep and what you came out with is it's about hope and i really i really love that i think i think that's a really elegant it's such an elegant answer but it's really profound. Like I, I think, it, yeah, it, it does, yeah, it does a lot in terms of. Uh, it's one of those things that it just like you hear it and you're like, yeah, that just sounds really right. Mm. Um, so yeah, f- thank you for doing that. But also, um, what a wonderful conversation to have talking about hope. Well, well, I hope so. And I hope people can yeah, yeah. get get stuff out of it. And, and, and I know you kind of hit on something there about it being about being a human about it being bad existence and it's you know that's it makes everything link up for me from being somebody a history undergraduate and you know you're looking at you know you know people's experience in the holocaust absolutely terrifying it seems like another world but what links you with those people well frankel says that that's hope and that hope brings you meaning in life to get out of the hard things so it, it made me kind of crystallize you know why is history and literature great because it talks about these ethereal inarticulate things yeah and and then we can you know if we can map those out in psychological practice and and, you know tell people you know we can do all these kind of intense consultations therapeutic practice assessment whatever but if that brings hope in your life that's brilliant 
Yeah. You know, and, and I think that is almost to every single EP that I've ever spent time with. And actually, every teacher, every parent, every child, they've all got some element of hope. Yeah. So why don't we talk about it in those in that language rather than um, kind of, I guess, a little bit more kind of despairing or technical. And, you know, I was listening to your podcast with Sue, Sue Roffey this morning and she was talking about, you know, academics talking in language that's only understandable to them. Yeah. No, for me, it's like that really resonates. It's like, yeah, we've got to be talking about something which people understand. And I, and I honestly think that every human being has got a relationship with hope. Yeah, for sure. I think I, I haven't read about cross-cultural experiences of hope. I, I, you yeah. know, I wonder, I wonder if you have, but it, I, I would struggle. I'd struggle to argue that, hope isn't central to to human experience it just mm. it just seems to be such a primal thing and it because because it's about even when things are hard it's about on a on an experiential level why do you keep going on mm. and and i and i mean this you know this is philosophical perhaps and not psychological but i i would argue that it's about the fact that you think something might change so during my, I did a narrative therapy course mm-hmm. and during that course I had my practice really challenged because some of the questioning styles that I was being exposed to seemed really rigorous or no, not mm-hmm. rigorous, vigorous. And I, and I was a bit uncomfortable. So, so for example, um, you know, there was, there was this role play, uh, somebody put their hand up and said, I really struggle when I have people come to a therapeutic session and they're problem saturated and I feel Mm -hmm. like I make suggestions and everything I say, they always have a negative answer. And, you know, they, they really articulated this point and it resonated in the room. So the teacher that day said, okay, let's role play that. So this person kind of got up ready to do their best problem saturated impression. Mm -hmm. And the, the teacher just in the first, 15 seconds said the the script was something like so it's been you spoke to lots of professionals none of them have been able to help you feel like things are really difficult why are you still coming back why did you come today Mm. and I was and I was sitting there going like wow that's really I don't know that's a bit like assertive are they ready for this but actually the, the key thing is that immediately it reframed it towards hope because mm-hmm. that person then thought and said, what are, why did I come today? Because I feel like maybe deep down something might change for the better. Yeah. Immediately, it was, it was, it was such a, I'm going to use the word elegant again. It was such an elegant question because it, it, it just changed the whole conversation about, well, what would you like to be different and how would you like it to be? Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, yeah, and I suppose I kind of view that as as a really ho- a hopeful style of of, of uh, approaching therapeutic conversations. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think I think that's that's absolutely right, and that's um, kind of really interesting. Like narrative therapy for me was something that kind of really resonated about kind of I guess that untangling problems in that in that questioning way, and uh, and 
and reauthoring and sustaining new stories. It's really, it's like, it's really hopeful at the bottom of that. Um, and I think there is a couple of things that I thought about when you talk about there that it kind of popped up in my kind of consciousness is that, um, although it's not a psychological uh, thinker, uh, there was a politician called Tony Benn, um, and he talked about, you know, to have progress in your life, uh, you need two flames. Uh, the first flame being the flame of anger, um, and the the second flame being the hope, the flame of hope that something will get better. Uh, and I think often psychologists are coming um, where the flame of anger is perhaps, or despair, or whatever that is, perhaps it, it is burning and has had more fuel than that of hope. Um, and it's, you know, for me, it's about, you know, how do we start fueling that hope? Um, what's, you know, what's a small enough goal that it's meaningful in somebody's life that plays into that idea that it's going to get better? Yeah. And, and that takes it from, I guess, wishful thinking, um, which, you know, can be kind of a really horrible thing to think. It's like, this is just wishful thinking that's a horrible thing to contend with to, okay, what's a small enough but meaningful enough goal to make it not wishful thinking? And how can these people help me to get there? And, and how will they know? So, I mean, that's, that's why, I guess, taking, I guess, this idea about catching hope, which is like, I said, this is kind of what we kind of talk about using that, that kind of narrative therapy idea to, to kind of manifest into conversation but it's like, how do we build from there? So could you tell me a bit more about the kind of narrative therapy and whether there's anything more kind of hope-based there or, you know, what are your thoughts on narrative therapy in general? Uh, well, I think that what I really like about narrative therapy is that it it puts the person that you're working with at the centre of the conversation. Yeah. and And it really in terms of the practice um, gets you into a habit of checking that you understand. And I think that it made me realize how much I might have assumed I understood people before. And it, it also got me into the habit of using people's exact language. Yeah. So in conversations, repeating people's language back to them, but also in my reports, I started including kind of quotes, direct quotes. Mm-hmm. And I really like that because it's like you're, you're bringing the person into the report and it becomes their report and not, you know, not your report about them. Yeah. I, I think that it's powerful as a tool because sometimes people feel stuck in a story that is really difficult or they they live in a situation where people are telling stories about their situation or about them or about their group their demographic their life experience Mm -hmm. which is judgmental and there's something in the practice so you you get these in the in the training that I did you kind of get exposed to these uh, almost like frameworks for conversations. So yeah, how to guide the, maps, people, yeah. the maps, exactly. Yeah. How to guide people through, through this, navigate these uh, mm-hmm. conversations and 
help discover values that are important to people and help um, check whether you found an exception to a particular narrative. And, mm-hmm. and I think that those preferred narratives are often more hopeful than the ones that people might be telling about themselves. Mm-hmm. And I, I use these techniques in my consultations quite regularly. I had a case with a, a woman who was uh, 16 mm-hmm. and they have had a really complicated family history. There has been lots of violence. There's been um, lots of time away and we're not sure exactly what happened during that time uh, or where they were. Okay. So that, so, so there's lots of reasons to be worried. Yeah. And in my first session with this woman, I, I'll be honest, I was feeling a bit out of my depth. <laughs> and <laughs> and, I, and my, my, alarm, my alarm bells were going off a bit. And I was thinking maybe I need to recognize that I'm, I'm at the edge of my competence at the moment. And, you know, this was kind of going on while, while I was trying to be present with them. And, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. and I, I'd asked a question about the fact that throughout this entire history that I was hearing about, the young person had always come to school. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I just checked in with that. And they said, it's because I'm a resilient person. Okay. And I just thought, huh, now, now suddenly we're talking about something completely different. The whole, the whole mood in the room changed. And, and that gave me uh, a spark to, to use uh, Tony Ben's analogy, yeah. right? We, suddenly we have a flame of hope. And wait, Tony Ben or Nigel Ben? Tony. Okay, few. Um, and <laughs> I was like, I don't want to get my Ben. Nah. <laughs> I get my Ben's mixed up. Subtly different. So yeah, now we have a spark of hope, and can we can we fan that into a flame? And so we could talk about other other times when they felt they'd been resilient. And and so you know, the whole conversation opened up. So I think that's a really nice example of how I felt the conversation changed and and Mm -hmm. suddenly the person was was talking about completely different experiences and the the techniques of of narrative therapeutic practice allowed us to to kind of find or Mm capture some hope. Yeah, I mean, that that resonates with some of my experiences on my placements is that I've been really interested in applying the ideas and... Um, I was expecting Senkos um, and teachers to be quite wary of it or a bit suspicious of it um, because it's kind of post-structural, not necessarily going to have outcomes which are applied in school. But I was asked to do a couple of kind of groups um, earlier this year. But what I I found was, I guess, like you in some ways, is that I was going in situations where the teachers perceived that these children had negative stories about themselves and generally lacked self-esteem or were vulnerable. And actually doing, I guess, therapeutics, I was using kind of tree of life and forest of life uh, approaches. 
they were actually pretty uh, happy with their lives. Uh-huh. Um, and I guess that kind of tells you just to be, tells, well, at least tells me, um, just to be, I guess, critical of, 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 of those sort of referrals in terms of, is this their story or is this your story? Yeah. But I think stories are incredibly powerful ways to, to communicate what life's about and, and, and where you want to go. So it's certainly something that I, I want to, um, I guess, read more about once I've got my thesis done. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's certainly some really kind of talented narrative psychologists up in the Northeast. Um, luckily, I live with one. <laughs> so hopefully <laughs> I can kind of draw on her experiences. Um, what, what kind of, for, for anybody who's interested in nar- narrative therapy, yeah. what books, what articles, is there any kind of videos or anything like that that somebody could go away and say, right, that's what it is. Okay, let's look at applying this in my EP practice or yeah. school practice or whatever it was. Yeah, definitely. I'm just going to turn on the light because I feel like the light coming in through the window is now no longer sufficient. That's fine. That's fine. Technology-based light source. There you go. Okay. Um, So I think that we're talking about sources or resources. Yeah. I, the Dalit Center has got a great website with lots of, articles on it the institute for narrative therapy uh is based in the uk that's who i did my training with and they they do too i michael white is the Mm. was the founder of the the approach and has written lots of different things some of the books can be quite hard to find or a bit expensive, yeah. uh, but there's one that I have called um, Maps of Narrative Practice. Yeah. Um, I think that you mentioned Tree of Life. Yeah. And um, I always said the, the name as Enkube, but on my, I'm gonna, on my narrative therapy course, I got told that actually the correct, the correct pronunciation is something like Nkube. Mm. And there's a little click that I, okay. I'm, I'm probably not quite uh, aware enough to put in the right place. But I think that there's a, there's a particular document that I'm thinking of, which has, I think, I think it's on the Dulwich Center's website. It has background about how the approach was used and developed and mm. that was my route into awareness around the, the approach. Um, yeah. So I was using Tree of Life before I knew anything about the principles of, of narrative therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, that, that's probably true. Um, and so... But I, I think that, 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 that's an element of narrative therapy, although the literature around it is... It, can be difficult to take it all in at once actually the 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 artifacts of it the the practice of it seems just to resonate with people and they kind of get it because narrative is 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 your story 
Yeah, exactly. Um, and, that, and that resonates felt, with people. Intuitively, it felt like a, an approach I was comfortable with. And as a tool, I felt like the tree of life was, was quite, could be quite self-contained. Yeah. Uh, now that I've done some training and I think I've probably got better as a psychologist, mm-hmm. I think there's a lot more that can be done with it. And, and I, you know, I view, I view it much less as like something that can be done in an hour uh mm-hmm. versus you know a, pr- a process that could be done over many many sessions so yeah um so yeah i think that that was my routine um mm-hmm. those are the resources that i think um that i yeah that i think i refer to the course that i did through the institute of narrative therapy was about 500 pounds yeah for five days which yeah. i mean it, it's a lot of money but i actually think for for five days, it seemed like good value. Um, okay. I know I know that they do courses across the country. Um, yeah. So yeah, that that that's probably that's yeah. probably something that I would look into um, yeah. if, if psychologists are interested. Yeah, it's it's something that's part of the training at Newcastle. Really, that's cool. Uh, yeah, yeah. So um, it's kind of I guess it's enshrined in the way we could think. Although, you know, it's like I will say it like some of it is moving and, and difficult to manage, I guess, in that training. And and it wasn't for everybody, um, I don't think. Um but it kind of really resonated with, I guess, my thinking kind of around Frankel and and Eric Fromm and, and people like that. It's like, you know, what are the stories that give people life uh, and, and and give them meaning? Um and I I find that fascinating. I guess um, a book that I found really helpful at kind of laying it out in an easy to read way was Alice Morgan's, it is, um, what is narrative therapy? An easy yeah. to read introduction. Uh, and that's just helpful of just kind of summarizing. <coughs> so if you're not in a place to, oh, I guess. I also, I also totally neglected to mention playful approaches to serious, what is it called? Playful approaches to serious problems. Okay. Um, it has a yellow cover and okay. it has purple people on it. Um, okay. that, that was something that I bought when I was a trainee um, that I think is uh, probably somewhere in between reading an intro to the Tree of Life and doing a course. It, it, okay. it might be, you know, um, a, a nice entry text as well. Yeah, I mean, we could, we could put links, I guess, into bios or whatever i don't know about this whole podcast thing but uh, i'll set your lead on that okay so you kind of mentioned kind of other approaches so we've got the kind of therapeutic approach and i guess um with you know looking at those hopeful stories and stuff we, we talked about on twitter about kind of hoping consultation um could you i guess summarize in two sentences for people who don't know what exactly consultation is in EP practice is <laughs> here we go I'm testing you now as a, as a qualified. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't know if you can summarize, can you summarize consultation into two sentences? Um, okay. What would it look like to somebody who wasn't an EP? Okay. So I suppose the basic vehicle of consultation is, a conversation between two people or mm-hmm. at the minimum and, and, and a group of people at, at the maximum. And there are lots of different schools of thought on consultation. So 
I think that some people view consultation in terms of gathering information about a, a case. Mm-hmm. Um, some people view consultation as therapeutic in, in itself. Mm-hmm. Some people might view consultation as a way to go through an entire process. So you might decide on a topic to talk about, gather information, co-create some ways forward, think about how you'll know if they're successful and then decide another time to talk. So that, you know, all of that could happen in one meeting. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the way that I use consultation really depends on the school that I'm working in, the mm-hmm. type of case, also the, the people that come to the room. Sometimes I think I have an idea of how a consultation is going to go. And actually there might be a parent there that really needs to take it in another direction. And that, and I, you know, I, I follow their lead and mm-hmm. we end up doing something really useful that I hadn't intended. Yeah. Uh, so that is a classic psychologist answer to a really simple question. I, uh, think, I think you did a pretty good, pretty good job. Paragraphs, don't I? Two sentences. But I, I think I, I, I agree and that's a helpful way of, of, of looking at it. And I guess it does depend on, I guess, your relationship with perhaps the school that you're working with, what type of work you're brought in to do, whether it's kind of very short or it's kind of a long-term relationship that you might be having with that school. Um, and I guess I, I guess hope in consultation for me I, happens in two ways. One that I think really relates to the last bit of the conversation we're talking about. I, I'll sit and I'll listen for, for hopeful stories. Uh, and sometimes that's everybody's hopeful. And sometimes it's the exception, but it's I'm 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 thinking about what's going well here, and and how can I build on that, mm. and what what are the features of that? And I guess I use hope theory as a framework. So to briefly go over what hope, hope theory is, is it's very basically you know, um, it's the sum of your agency. So how confident you feel about yourself being the author of your own success and your pathway thinking, which is the different ways that you can think of getting that success and what's cause and correlation and, and what you're going towards your goal. Um, and whatever that goal is, how precise that goal is, is dependent on, on the person. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm actively listening, I guess, in consultation for times where that group of people, that person has set a goal and they've hit it and how they've hit that and, and what were the different ways that they tried and, and how agentic they feel about that. Uh, you know, and, and this is why I think it's really important when I work particularly in consultation with young people and you'll be able to take, tell me lots more about it because your thesis was on it, but that really digging into their interests and the stuff they're really good at seems to be so powerful in my practice and then i guess you know I, I i can come across a child who's interested in minecraft or lego or something like that say okay what are the skills what are the pathways to hitting the goals that they set on a regular basis because this person can do it because they're doing it in this particular arena and how can we transplant those skills into a, a school setting and how do they get feedback 
from when they hit goals, whether it be boxing or in a video game or, or playing football or playing music and saying, okay, this is clearly something that works for them and makes them feel confident, makes them feel agentic. So let's just try to do a bit of that uh, and see what happens. So there's, I guess there's the listening way. Um, I don't know if, if that's something that resonates with you or... Yeah, I think I think that's a really powerful description of, of EP practice, li- listening for, for stories of hope. I also I think initially my take on the idea of hope in consultation might have been focusing on the I the, the technique of the reframe. Okay. So trying to trying to wonder if there might be a hopeful interpretation mm-hmm. behind behind a situation. But something you made me think of when you were talking is, is, is I think, a bit deeper than the idea of a reframe. So I think something that's quite powerful about hope is it has to be genuine. It has to be authentic. So... I, I went through a, a period of time where I was really interested in positive psychology as, a, as mm-hmm. a, an evidence base. And I think one of the biggest criticisms that I had of positive psychology was that sometimes it could be used in a bit of a tyrannical way. So, for example, mm-hmm. list me your strengths. And it's like, but right now I don't feel like I have any strengths. Or, mm-hmm. okay, tell me. 10 good things that happened today and it's like nothing good happened today. So th- there could be a top-down misuse of the idea of positivity. And I think that hope is very different because it, in order for it to be defined as such, it has to, it has to resonate with the person. And so I think that it's, it's for me, it's kind of a, it's a, it's a wonderful middle ground. So, so it's, it's a way of, thinking about how you can help people have more feelings of happiness mm. without without falling into the trap of that that top-down practice of yeah you know uh yeah hitting people with the the baton of, of positivity positivity i think yeah i mean that's that's interesting i was reading a a english literature book talking and it's called hope without optimism um oh. I'll put I'll put the link to it in the, in in the description. But basically, the, the thesis is this: is that he argues that people who are um, optimistic, professionally optimistic, are very annoying. Um, and actually, it's shallow. It's a shallow hope um, by just saying you've got all these strengths and it's fine. That puts you know it really kind of. Uh, puts people out of concern because they're like, well, you're not listening mm. to to the adversity that I'm facing. Mm. Um, so his idea is that you hope is a really useful idea of saying, right, yes, things are bad, and yes, you have strengths. And let's use the strength to to find find the light. Um, and there's a there's a great poem by Charles Bukowski. Um, where it's called the laughing heart and it's, it's about, I, I, I go back to it almost weekly because it really sums up my view on hope. And he um, talks about, you know, keep on, keep on the watch, you know, the gods will offer you chances and you need to take them. 
you can't beat death, but you can beat death in life sometimes. Yeah, that's beautifully kind of sums up, yes, things are really difficult. Suffering, I believe, is part of life. Um, but there are opportunities to build yourself yeah. and, and to live a life which isn't continually suffering. Yeah, yeah. I hadn't heard of that poem before, but yes, that was a really nice line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think... Yeah, I think this kind of, I often talk about hope in consultation um, with, with, with people and often use it, as you're saying, in the kind of reframing that kind of genuine summary of what I've, I've heard. Um, and I, I tend to use, I guess, hope-led consultation tools, stuff like kind of person-centred planning, things like planning alternative tomorrows with hope. Yeah. Um, that's kind of a centre piece of my uh, practice. Um, and those things start with a question what is your dream what's your life going to be would you like your life to be like and once you focus those what you know that question is about if things were possible then that's fine then you can get onto the nitty-gritty of what's actually available right now yeah yeah so people can have the big dream and that's brilliant because that drives their life and then have the kind of smaller incremental things which are more boring but if you can say all the things that you're going to do in school can link up to that big goal, that's such a powerful thing of reframing of what school's about. Yeah. Um, where there's quite strong narratives about schools, I think, about schools being oppressive and like prisons and I've got to do my time. Um, and, I, you know, it's something I brought from my time as a head of year. It's like, what if you force about school like a shop? were all the lessons or aisles where you could take things from. And they seem to get that more <laughs> than me saying, well, school's a bit like a prison. Yeah. You just got to do your time, keep your head down, because there's no meaning in that. It's all for the school. It's not for the person. So I think you're right about saying it's about finding what's genuine, what's motivating for that person, yeah. Mm. I love that analogy. If, what if school was like a shop? Yeah. Because you don't take everything from the cereal aisle, but you do, something catches your eye and you say, yeah, I'll, I'll take that. Because it links to something else in your life outside the shop. Yeah. Like Whereas, you milk. Uh, yes. Well, or like, you know, I can go into a shop and I can buy this thing because it makes me feel this way about my life, you know. That's a very inarticulate metaphor. But, you, you know, you know, it's... I think it's, you know, children and young people can tend to tell you what they want and they tend to, I guess, be told off a little bit for telling people, I want this, I want that. But actually, it's a really good starting point, um, I think, for people. Yeah. Um, I think the other way that I, I try to use hope in consultation is when I've, I, I guess what I'd call, well, I wouldn't call, but it would be called process consultation where I'm doing it over a long period of time, but particularly with... Uh, teachers and uh, special educational need coordinators or head teachers who I've got a long-standing relationship with is using every individual piece of casework as a way to make them more hopeful about the school that they're running uh, or the department or the class that they're running uh, and um, pointing out the hopeful things that they're doing because I think there's a performative culture to teaching you'll know more than 
than I do, having been a teacher. And, and I think it's powerful when somebody comes in and tells you, I think this is good, man. You, you're doing the best that you can with that, that situation. I mean, I don't know what your thought is on that as, as an ex-teacher. I think I, I really liked teaching and I really, I don't think I ever really, I don't think I ever really thought about it on that macro level. I think I, at that point in my, I think it's probably, I, I didn't teach long enough to get experienced enough to have my head up that much. But having worked with lots of teachers now, I really like what you're describing in terms of using those contact points and, and you know, um, moments with them to build, you know, build and contribute to this, this overall narrative of improvement or hope or success or helping. Mm. I think that, yeah, I think that I, I'm just, I'm just remembering consultations that I've had quite recently where teachers have left the room feeling happier about the situation. And sometimes, sometimes it, it you know, it's, it's the smallest thing. It's just acknowledging that they've been putting a lot of effort into a difficult situation, you know, yeah. and, yeah. and, that they've stopped it from getting worse. Mm -hmm. You know, that doesn't sound very hopeful, but actually for them just having that recognition completely changed their, mm. completely changed their, their emotional state. And they left, they left feeling happy. Like, Oh, somebody's noticed. Yeah. I'm not doing this in vain. Mm. Um, so yeah. yeah, I like that. You called it process consultation. Which is, mm -hmm. which is interesting because I, I don't know that, that much about process consultation, but I, yeah, I hadn't ever thought about it like that as, as kind of across multiple sessions. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's my interpretation of process consultation where the idea is everything is an intervention. And I guess my, what I mean by the intervention is like all, everything about education to me, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a parent, whether you're a child, you learn something. Otherwise... It wasn't worth it. It's dead wood. Mm. So if I can facilitate, if I can say, look, even if something's gone wrong in a piece of casework or a child's been excluded or whatever, it's like, wh what have we learned? And how does that, you know, how can we take the lessons of the individual and put it towards the group or, you know, make it help other people? You know, I, I always kind of, I remember my first year in school, as a pastoral head and I'd come home day of shouting, no voice, um, feeling, having no positive feedback about what I've been doing. It was well intended, but it wasn't working. And I looked in the mirror and thought, I didn't set out to be mistrunchable. No one ever does, you know, and, and teachers under a lot of pressure. So I think as much as, you know, we can work with young people and families, you know, I I make it a point that I don't assume that the teacher is just a role, and there's a person there's a person there who can also be more hopeful about their life, their role, um, and if I can facilitate something towards that, um, then that has the I guess the double edged 
good sword effect of it encourages to, to trust and see things as a process, as an ongoing learning thing, um, which helps to manage expectations. Like no one's got a magic wand, although everybody expects somebody to have one. Yeah. Um, and that trust allows, I guess, the centers I'm working with at the moment, they, they allow me to be more creative and, and try new things because it's going to be discussed with them in that manner. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's, a, that's a really nice description, I suppose, of how relationships and the understanding that you're on the same team can lead to, to more more flexibility that yeah that that trust is a, is a foundation to okay i mean mm. tim wants to do this flip chart paper drawing exercise we'll see where it goes because i know it's mm. well intended and i know that ideas <coughs> have been useful in the past and um, yeah. there's a a psychologist called karen treisman who i um I'm, i really like and respect um she has a quote which is every interaction is an intervention mm -hmm. i think that that is so such a good quote i wish that uh i think probably every psychologist wish that they'd come up with it but um it, yeah i feel like it really links to what you're saying in terms of when you're in school you have the you have the chance to make you know that teacher in the corridor feel seen or you know that that Senko running running between meetings feel slightly more calm or whatever it is. And those those mm -hmm. micro moments can can add, you know, add up and 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 really change the school culture over time. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. And, and you know, it, it all starts with relationship, I think. And I think it's it's easy to think of these environments and schools as as, as toxic. That, you know, that's something that, jarred me a little bit in your conversation with, with Sue Roffey, although I'd never um, openly criticise her to, to her face, obviously. But I think... Well, criticism it, doesn't have to criticism, be that. Criticality. I think it's that criticality, okay. Um, I don't think schools set out to be toxic. There may be schools that don't fulfil child's emotional needs all of the time, and that's an ongoing journey about learning, helping, containing... Um, and that's something that EPs could definitely do. And, you know, she poses us as agents of change. And I've taken it and just shifted it a, a little bit, I guess. Um, but I think, you know, schools are full of hopeful people. Mm. Um, and, and I mean, I want to know what Sue thinks about that. You know, yeah. I, I'd love to I'd love to hear a comment on on what you just said in terms of that toxicity and... And yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm not even going to comment. I, mm. I'm going to leave that, and then uh, she can she can. <coughs> let me yes, he, he quakes in fear now. Okay, I mean, you know, I guess the the, the last thing before we kind of get some questions that the Twitter EP community have posed to us um, would be we we thought about kind of hope in times of adversity. Clearly, we're in uncharted waters for our generation really um in terms of adversity and you know i think it's been horrifying and worrying and 
I guess, traumatizing to to a degree in terms of, you know, people's and certainly, you know, my perception of what my normal life is has completely fallen. You know, the bottom of it's fallen out. Um, And there have been times where it's hard to be hopeful in in, in that situation. Um, And I'm just kind of wondering on, on a human level, what, what things, you know, have you been getting up to which have at least, I guess, not been terrible? Like you said in consultation, what are the things that have right. made this kind of COVID-19 situation a little less adverse for you? Yeah, I think the first thing really is just to recognise the emotive element of the situation mm-hmm. for myself. So it it's been really hard in points it's been really amazing at points so things that have been particularly hopeful for me seeing people being really kind and generous and innovative not even in a professional context Mm. no um i had a neighbor uh big up layla i had a neighbor come and drop off a box of gloves mm-hmm. because they knew that we were going to be getting some uh, groceries for somebody else. And so they were like, here's, you know, we didn't, we didn't even ask, we didn't even know that Layla would think to come to our house like that, but you know, yeah. but she did. And, and just that moment, it was like, Oh, I know they're doing something to help. So I'm going to do something to help that. And it just, you know, that just encapsulated something that, that is there if if you if you're in a position to see it. So yeah. some days I have felt really worried about what the future holds, and so I'm not really in a place to uh, connect with hopeful things like that. And mm. other days I feel like I wake up and I actually feel like I'm surrounded by people doing amazing work, and and that this is a, an example of everything that's incredible about humans in terms of generosity and audacity and working really hard to help other people and so I think that yeah that that's a kind of a narrative um that I liked really liked noticing yeah yeah and I think what's wonderful about that is that it's provided a counter narrative um to I guess the past three years which feels like society in the UK has been completely polarised on some sort of indefinable issue around the European referendum. But now the chip's down, people are, you know, they're still politicising the situations and the what-ifs and they should and... But, you know, people are coming together to, to, to a large extent to kind of come towards you know, a communal goal and helping people out in the little ways that they can, setting those small incremental goals, which is meaningful and helpful to somebody else and, and bonds those, those kind of trustful relationships. Like, you know, I, I hope, you know, those things continue beyond, um, you know, whenever this ends or at least people are mindful to the fact that people are doing the small things. Um, and it's those things that kind of keep us ticking over. 
Um, and yeah, I think, you know, hope, hope can be described as a really dangerous thing. You know, I think at the start of the conversation, you talked about kind of cross-cultural ideas around it. Um, and certainly in, you know, I think in Judeo-Christian societies, it's seen as a wholly positive thing. Um, but in some cultures, it's seen as, as really dangerous. And, you know, it's the last thing left in Pandora's box. You know, so in that culture, it was seen as kind of a, don't, don't ever get your hopes up because you'll always have them dashed. So I think I wouldn't necessarily go around preaching a hopeful way out of the situation when I, I, I don't have, I guess, the agency or pathways way to, to think that. That would just be wishful thinking. Um, and I think there's a lot of kind of willful thinking going along at the moment. So willful thinking is <clears throat> you have to do this thing and achieve this goal or else. Um, and then kind of a lot of anger, I guess, um, that I'm seeing on, on, on Twitter, particularly uh, and Facebook about people choosing different things or people being key, key workers or not. Mm-hmm. Um, it's difficult, man. It's, it, it's a, uh, it's a strange situation, but I think hope can be helpful, but it's like timing when you're going to talk about hope. I think um, it's good. That's a really interesting point. I, I, so I'm just thinking about the last few weeks for me. I let all of my schools know that I'm there if they <coughs> need help or yeah. they, you know, they want to talk. And then I gave them a bit of space because I just thought there's so much for them to process and organize. Yeah. You know, like staff rotors, calling families, who, who is vulnerable, all, all of these things. And, um, and then just, I, I just kept on checking in really and acknowledging how difficult the situation was. It, I, I, I don't know, you know, I, it's funny, I think the hope was only in my head, like at some point I think they'll be in a place where I can be useful because before that I think you know schools were in such a reactive uh reactive place because they had so much to do and there was so much fear and and so talking about hope then would have been annoying or offensive. Yeah. <laughs> but now we have a few routines in some of my schools which are helpful and i think once i was able to start being helpful then i felt more hopeful and i think then that allowed me or empowered me or encouraged me to feel like the school was also starting to see some some other you know some other possibilities yeah and how we could work together but yeah when when does one mention hope potentially potentially the word hope it you know could could yeah it could be a bit inflammatory Mm, Um, do you ever do you ever name hope in in your work like consultation wise yeah i think in summaries i often say i will say i've heard some hopeful stories in the room today and these are them and they're, they're important because they tell me this about this group of people. And this is your goal going forward. And you could draw upon your experiences of those 
those hopes that you've had and those uh, fulfilling activities that you've done together, the fact that you've got yourselves together in a room to talk to, you know, a lanky six foot psychology student about important things in this child's or this school's life shows me that you can set goals and you've got the pathways between you to feel agentic about going forwards with it. Yeah. And maybe it's just about, I guess what I'm doing there is that I'm giving them feedback because that's a really important part of hope theory is, is the feedback because that, that sets off how we intuitive think about hopefulness. Um, and I guess in the, in the, the timing element of it, um, I think it's always important to say there is some hope, however small that, that is. Um, and, and I think that's, that's gone through my educational practice where I've been working in schools or working in the psychology services, that if people can leave with some sense of hope, that something's going to happen to make it better or things aren't quite as bad as they seem, then that, that, that's good. And I think maybe just holding those hopeful ideas in your head and sometimes you've got to keep the hopeful story in so as not to be professionally optimistic. And then it may be, you know, using a narrative therapy idea, it's like having that narrative letter. You know, they're really powerful um, ways to just think about an email and just say, I noticed this today, I didn't say it at the time, but maybe that tells you something about the way forward. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think there's, timing it is a difficult thing and maybe it's an intuitive, you'll, you'll feel whether it's right or not, like you kind of described earlier on in this crisis, wouldn't have been helpful and might have inflamed situations. Um but I think what you said earlier in consultation about hope being genuine, people come to you with their hopes if you ask the right questions. Um, so waiting for those conversations to start and then saying, okay, there's an applied psychology to that as well as a nice idea. Um, and this, this is perhaps a way forward towards something which isn't quite as catastrophic. Yeah. That was that quote really stood out to me. People will come to you with their hopes if you if you listen. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a. I I like to start consultations with that question if I can. Um, you know, what's the dream? And then you're instantly galvanizing what those people in the room can do towards that, um, because often you know the dream, the hope is absolutely reasonable yeah you know it's not like i want to you know it's not like a six-year-old saying you know i want to work for nasa and uh, be a professional footballer and all that sort of things i think as psychologists we're able to unpick what people's hopes are and usually i want a normal life i want you know you know i was talking to a 13 year old who's between schools at the moment he said, Tim, what I want is a job. I can have a good work-life balance and I can have a relationship which works for me. It's like, fine. Absolutely. There's nothing unreasonable about that. Yeah. Um, and feeding that back to schools and stuff like, okay, we can do that. Yeah. It's, not, it's not intangible. It's not like this, ch this child is being unreasonable. 
It's like, oh, okay, we can work towards that. And education can seem like less of a drag. I haven't ever thought about this before now, so I don't know where this will go. But I wonder if maybe there is a flip side to hope, which is shame. So if I'm if I'm putting myself in the position of the, the child you just talked about, if I'm embarrassed about that desire to have a job with a good work-life balance, or I don't think it's possible, and I don't feel able to articulate that, I could, I could imagine that there's this shame which bubbles under in it, and it, and it could really, it could really be hard to to feel. But in naming that hope and having it validated by other people, mm. I, I can imagine that being such, such a lovely moment or such an affirming moment. Um, I don't, I don't know what how that strikes you, but yeah, I'd never really thought about hope and shame and the link. But um, yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think that's really important to bring up. I think, I guess my way of thinking about that is when I was at school, I got by okay and coasted and got into a, you know, a uni and that was fine. Um, and it was only after I finished that uni and kind of coasted that degree because I was just like, didn't really, I knew that I had to do something in order to get a good job, but I hadn't, no one had ever asked what do you want to do apart from a careers advisor who printed off a sheet and said, right, go and be a journalist. Um, Because I said, I like football. Um, And that was it. So I thought, okay, well, I'll just kind of coast through life and I won't ever refine what that goal is. And then I got out of uni and wasn't very good at what I did. And I had never, I wasn't preparing for that. I hadn't thought about how can education help me to go and fulfill that goal. So I, I guess that those kind of questions come from a place of like, I wish somebody had asked me because then it would have made everything more bearable and it wouldn't have been such a catastrophic um, blow when things didn't work out and I worried about what everybody else thought because that's why I was doing it. Mm. Whereas if I thought, okay, what's my internal motivation for this uh, earlier, that probably would have been quite helpful. And, and people tend to say, precisely what it is and it takes that thing out of the murk um so at least that you've got that thing that you can say okay school is a process to what towards getting towards that thing and some some bits of it are hard yeah and some bits are really uh, unpalatable but that you know if it links to your dream and your hope great let's do that yeah, let's do that. And that sounds quite dismissive, but actually, I think it can be quite a profound experience for a young person to to, to, to think about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, and it, you know, also links back into the, the work I was doing in um, pupil referral units, where um, you know, if it were, you know, it was seen as this huge task to get the children back into mainstream school. And part of what I do with the EP was to say, what do you want to get out of it? What would help? What are your challenges? Go and have that conversation with them, with, with, with a head teacher ahead of year. And all of those children stayed in mainstream school. Yeah. Because they felt I've been listened to. Yeah, yeah. And this links with something that's important to me. Yeah. Well, but yeah. 
Um, if it's okay, Joe, I'll move us on to some questions that I've had from Twitter. Yes. Uh, some of these we might have touched on before, um, but it'd be good to have, a, I guess, a 10-minute conversation about them. I'm, I'm aware that time's moving on. Um, so, Laura from Twitter has asked, how do we get the balance right between a foot in pain and a foot in possibility? And in addition to that, do we sometimes push through pain to get to hopeful situations too quickly? Did you say that Laura asked that question? Yeah. Wow. That's such a big question. And if I'm honest, I, I don't know. I think... Mm-hmm. So just before lockdown, I found out that I had got a, a, a travel research grant. <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I hope at some point um, I will be able to fulfill that. But that was all about researching compassionate and mindful approaches to suffering. Okay. Dot, 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 as a way to, to help people experience that in a you know, potentially transformative way. Mm-hmm. So I, I, th- I feel like there's real... Uh, wisdom and possibility in suffering I think that I think that sometimes we can ignore the fact people have a foot in pain Mm -hmm. or we can try and force them to take their foot out of pain and I think that that can be really difficult I I think that sometimes people will always have a foot in pain and and that and that's where that's where they are and and sometimes their foot will be in pain for reasons that they can't control and so yeah. we can't if we yeah if we can't ever remove that reason or, or or facilitate that change we need to be thinking about what we can do alongside it i'm thinking about the the contemporary resilience research base in, in mm-hmm. terms of some risk factors will always be present. We need to try and tilt the balance with protective factors. So I don't know, Laura. <laughs> um, I, think, I think it's a massive question. I think it's a really important one, but I also think that it's quite natural to want to help. And I think that sometimes that can lead to rushing people or invalidating experience or ignoring experience and i think that yeah pain 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 is important too i what do you what do you think about about well it it, it kind of makes me think a bit of um some of victor Victor frankel's work um you know he, he was coming up with uh his kind of logos therapy idea in a concentration camp you know he had several foots in pain um there and it was about you know how do we make life worth living despite the pain despite the suffering and i think people will always have a fussy pain that's part of human experience um if we can help them to uh be mindful of the ways that they cope with that to date and to apply psychology in order to alleviate some of that suffering or at least allow them to feel agency and to kind of flip that, you know, how does this suffering make me an expert in something and how can I help somebody else, you know, 
I mean, lots of psychologists tell me a story around that idea of I had this painful experience and psychology helped me to think about how I could help other people in, the, in that. And I think that's a really powerful, meaningful um, story to, to live out. Um, so I think, yes, we, we do come upon people who are in pain and who are looking for a kind of a step forward into possibility. Mm. Uh, but I think you should be mindful of they may carry that pain indefinitely but that's not necessarily despairing that can be hopeful yeah you know you know it's what's the is uh, what's the bigger i guess what's the biggest chunk of that pain that they can carry and be still useful and still fulfill all their needs in life and then what else what what can people take off them Mm -hmm. um so it's not doing stuff for people it's helping people to plan those things out yeah um in life so i think that would be my argument although that doesn't directly answer the question but great question though it's a great question um and laura asked another question and it's the last question um are some people better at doing hope and do we need to be aware of privilege in that wow i think I have I had a few immediate reactions to that. The first is the I think I think personality psychology would probably argue that some people are more predisposed to positive affect or rumination. I think that I I don't mean that in a, a deterministic or negative way. Yeah. I think that if you looked across a population, it probably would be true that some people were naturally more hopeful than other people or naturally held less firmly onto failures or difficult experiences. Mm-hmm. I think that, I think that hope hope probably facilitates hope to some degree. And, and, you know, there, there we start to edge into the territory of privilege or mm. opportunity. So yeah, some people definitely have easier lives than other people. And do some people do hope better than other people? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think those are my immediate responses to it. I mm. think that, yeah, doing hope is is an interesting phrase, though. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't yeah. know how you take that. I mean, I'll bounce an, an idea off you, which is, I guess, something I'm looking to publish going forwards um, about hope. Um, is that I, I kind of I, I looked at hope theory, and Snyder, who is your kind of main hope theory guy, positive psychologist basically argues that some people are low hope individuals or high hope individuals and that's context and platform independent so um they're either hopeful or they're, or they're not um i disagree i think um whatever we hope for it is depend is is ecological essentially so we take cues from our environment um, and the people around us as to whether how hopeful we, we, we are 
at doing something and that means that we draw upon how agentic we feel, how many different ways we can think about something and how precise the goal um, is. Some people might be more in the discipline of doing that successfully. Um, and those people have, might have more privileged positions in society where more opportunities and resources have been put into helping them to do that and fulfil hope. Although I would say that, you know, people also have their level of suffering uh, and that that's never a privilege. Um, so regardless of what privileges you do have, there are, I think there's a counter to that. But what I'd, what I'd argue is that I draw on uh, Jonathan Haidt's work about kind of moral decisions and stuff is that um, there's, an, there's an intuitive emotional element of hope. So if I set you a task, you'd have an intuitive automatic um, reaction to that. Do I feel hopeful about doing that? Or that's never going to happen. And everything in between those two things. Um, then you have your evidence-based hope. So Snyder says you have your hope thoughts from the past. So what's the evidence that you've been able to, to do that? So you've got your emotive or intuitive hope. Then you've got your evidence base, which leads into like how much you care about that goal going forwards and how genuine it is. Um, and then you have your experience-based hope, which is your experience of applying agentic thinking and pathway thinking towards a goal and what feedback you got from that. Um, and therefore, I'd argue that some people in some situations are going to be more hopeful in that situation. You, you know, if I came to your martial arts gym, I wouldn't have a hope in hell. You know, I've done one boxer size class, my legs hurt and never went back, you know? Um, but, you know, put me in front of a room of people and I'll sit and play guitar and sing to them because that's something I've practiced. That's something that I've, you know, dedicated time of my life to. So I think you can be disciplined in hope. And you can, you can be privileged in hope, but you can also be disciplined in it. And I'd suggest that we shouldn't give up on the idea of hope because some people are more privileged in getting their hopes fulfilled. Uh, uh. If we're disciplined about it, that means that we set small enough goals that are meaningfulness, like you would in the gym. If you can't lift something, you go to something that you can lift, but it's still a strain and you work up to going to the big goal. And that's what I, that's what I think we do psychologically. Uh, that's what I think I do psychologically is help people to to identify goals and work up to those goals by having mini goals towards that. Yeah. Um, don't know how many times I think goal in a sentence, but you know, I think that's that's the way I'd kind of look at that question. Um, is that you know. We, we, we often work with people who aren't privileged um, and we can as um, you know a predominantly white middle class profession um, you know I think there's a danger that we could come across as privileged um, but only if we see it as something which is static and, and doesn't you know you're either hopeful or you're not and that's it I like the way that you framed it in terms of ecology. So, mm -hmm. e you know, even if we accept that some people have a, pr a 
a predisposition biologically mm. to experience more or less positive states or, or, or you know, rumination, you still, within your family, might see people approaching situations in certain ways or um, yeah. showing, showing working through adversity. You might then in your, in your community, society, politically, you, you know, you, you might have all of these different systems around you, yeah. uh, which could show you that hope is, is possible or that, um, to, oh, you talked about, um, your evidence, your evidence of hope. Was that evidence? Yeah. Intuitive evidence and experience based hope. Yeah. yeah. So I suppose, um, you know, then as a, as an agent of hope, eh? Um, you, you, you might find the smallest weight that someone can lift to start giving them that, that evidence. And so, you know, that, that just strikes me as kind of a wonderful intervention, really. Um, so even, even if you didn't, you know, you didn't have the biology and you didn't have the family and you didn't have the, the society, I feel like humans are, you know, we, we are adaptive and, and we, and we can learn. And, and so why wouldn't you be able to learn hope? Um, but, in, but the question was about doing hope. And, and I yeah. think that doing hope's interesting because it makes me think of output. Yeah. And I could imagine somebody walking around feeling very hopeful and happy and content and actually not producing output which people would judge uh, hope by. But um, I, really like, I really like the different layers that you, you laid mm. out. And I, I, wanna, I wanna read uh, more of Snyder's work on that. That sounds really cool. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I, mean, I mean, the key, the key thing that perhaps I left out there is feedback. Um, and, and that's something that EPs, friends, family, other kids, teachers can do. Yeah. And, and a question like asking consultations, how will you know when you've achieved a goal? What will other people be doing and how will you feel? Yeah. And people will tell you, I really like it when I get a postcard home or I get a thumbs up or whatever it is. It's like, okay, that's a, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. That's, they're telling us how to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so just, yeah. And that feeds back into your intuitive reaction, your experience space, your evidence space. Yeah. And makes you more, I'd say that makes you more of a hopeful person. Mm-hmm. And starting with, starting with their, starting with them helps to facilitate something that's genuine and, you know, and it, and it avoids what we were talking about before, which is this kind of top down, uh, judgmental, uh, positivity. The young people that, worked with me for my thesis research talked about this wonderful cycle between having just enough trust in their boxing trainers to allow them to push them really hard during training mm-hmm. and then surpassing their expectations in terms of what they achieved leading to more trust leading to being comfortable being pushed even further and you had this wonderful virtuous cycle great and um and it and it strikes me that that fits really nicely in with the model you described, um, and the feedback 
the feedback was from the people around them, but also in terms of the actual changes in, in their technique and their performance and all, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I could, I could see how you would then experience hope across all the dimensions that you outlined. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's a really, I'd never, I'd never heard it framed like that. I, yeah, that's really, that's really useful. Well, maybe it's a co-publication in waiting. I, don't know. <laughs> I feel like that's your publication in waiting. Um, but, 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 but that very nicely illustrates it, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and I, you know, yeah. I mean, if it can, I think that's, if people can link up with these ideas, that's that's good for the profession, that's good for society, yeah. No doubt. Well, well I've noticed we've, we've tipped over 90 minutes, um, which... I think this conversation's been brilliant and hopeful and um, a really good experience for me um, doing my first podcast. Have you got any kind of closing reflections that you'd like to finish on? I'm so, I'm so glad that we took the time to talk. I feel like I have been facilitated to think about my own practice by, by your questions. I feel like I've learned a lot about hope, which is, which is really great. Um, philosophically, but also practically, I feel mm-hmm. like I'm going to be able to do different things in my work now, which is really, really, really cool. I think that it lays out a really interesting model for, for other psychologists out there. We all end up with these kind of, you know, we have, we have skills in common and we have evidence bases that we draw on that, you know, might be more or less popular. But I think that just through the nature of our work, it, it, does, it does get quite individual sometimes in terms of, you know, your interests. And I feel like, yeah, th- these kind of conversations help to, help to kind of share a mix and, and, and turn things into quite an interesting cocktail. So I, yeah, I think that it's a really cool model and I'm just thinking about clinical psychologists and counseling psychologists and you know countless other applied psychologists who Mm -hmm. could you know could be having these kind of conversations and and I you know I wonder what cool stuff could could come out of it basically yeah yeah I'm absolutely open to any suggestions and all you know I think the idea of open educational psychology is 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 a good idea and having these conversations, long form conversations, and for people to kind of stick with it for an hour and a half, whatever, that that would be lovely to have feedback about anything that resonated and anything like that. So I think I've said all I can say. My face is now very red. Uh, <laughs> um, hopefully, I'll get used to it. But thank you very much, Joe. It's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, I don't know how we end this, but yeah, yeah. again soon. Why not? <laughs> It's been a great conversation, yeah, and uh, yeah, let, let, let's keep talking, and um, I can't wait to hear what, what people think, and to hear other episodes of Agents of Hope. Awesome. Great stuff. Okay, thanks, right. Joe.